Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Uh, we just hand over this morning to you this, uh, this time. Uh, this is not about us. This is about you. And Lord, I'm thankful for this chapter, especially this morning, where you continue to remind us of your glory and your grace. <sighs> thank you, Lord. I thank you for this time, uh, for the opportunity that we can come, for the freedoms that we enjoy here in this country, um, that we can come and we can open up our Bibles, that we can even own a Bible. I thank you, Lord. Now, would you take this time, Lord? Lord, would you prepare each one of our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us today? And in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, last, last week in chapter one, you know, Paul starts with one of my favorite subjects, how gracious God is. In fact, I think that verse three really kind of sums up the whole chapter really nice. It says, blessed be the God and father of the Lord Jesus Christ, or worthy of praise is God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing that he has, he has blessed us with. Man, that's amazing. And last week, we walked through several of those spiritual blessings that he has given to us. What an amazing opening chapter Ephesians chapter 1 is. And, and Ephesians chapter 2 that we're going to look at today starts with my other favorite subject, me, <laughs> actually, and you, and actually look at the verse, and you. So as much as Paul is writing to them or about them, he's writing about me, and he's writing about you, and we often are our own favorite subject, are we not? And maybe you thought that that was just a recent like Facebook selfie thing, but remember when you were in school, and at some point during the year, you got your yearbook? Like, Denise already knows where I'm going. Like, what was the first thing you do when you got your yearbook? You're like, I'm going to find, where am I? Where am I in here? Oh, that, there's one. Oh, there's another one. Oh, that's not a good one. And, and you just went through looking for pictures of you. That's kind of how we are. We are our favorite subjects. Now, here, Paul's going to say, and you. But he has a reason why he's going to do these first few verses in this chapter. His intention here is to continue to highlight God's glory. And to do that, he's going to paint a dark background on which to show God's glory against. It's kind of like this. Do you guys know Bob Ross? The joy of painting. The happy little tree. Here's a little flock of birds just as you want. I'm going to put a little mountain here. The joy of painting with Bob Ross. See, I don't know if you've never watched Bob Ross before, what Bob would do was he wouldn't paint on a white canvas. He would actually color his canvases dark or black or whatever dark color, and then begin to paint his painting on top of a dark canvas because everything that he put on then on top of that dark canvas just seemed brighter and more vibrant in contrast to the dark canvas that was behind it. Well, in this chapter, we're the dark canvas 
on which God's glory laid against, in contrast, shines even brighter. It's, here's another example. Maybe you're not an art person. When you go to the jeweler to look at these beautiful diamonds, what does he do? He takes them out and he lays them on a black satin pad. Because against the black satin pad, the, the beauty of the diamond glows even more. And Paul is going to say, you are that dark canvas, or were that dark canvas. You were that black velvet pad on which the glory of God shines even greater laid up in contrast to. So that's what he's going to talk about in this chapter, at least in the first couple of verses. So let's get into it. It says, and you, he made alive who was dead in trespasses and sin. Right away, he comes right out. And you, he made alive who were dead. Now, you know, if you don't understand God's concept of alive and dead, this could be a little bit confusing. So let me break it down for you. God's concept of alive and dead is different than ours. For us, if we're alive, we think, okay, our heart is beating. There's brain activity going on. We're eating food. We're wearing clothes. We're going to football games and doing fun things like that. We're alive. But when those activities cease, then we're dead. You have a number of years in there that that operates in. I'm alive this many years and then I'm dead. But to God, death is different than that. To God, death is separation from him. Alive is in his presence. So what he says right here is before he made you alive, you were dead in your trespasses and your sin. That means that you were on a path that was leading you to eternal separation from God. And God says, that's death. But he made you alive. You see this? This says you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. They're not exactly the same. And maybe you thought Paul's just repeating himself, sins and trespasses, and it's all sin, right? But there's a kind of a, a little bit of a difference between sin and trespasses. And I think maybe we've talked about this before, but here's, here's, a, here's a reminder. The word sin means that you've missed the mark. Um, it, it, it came from uh, an archery tournament. If you were an archer... Um, they would set up a target, and it actually was a pole with a ring on the top of it, and you had to pull back your arrow and shoot it through the ring. And if you made it through the ring, you scored, and if you missed, you sinned. That's what the word is. You missed the mark. It meant that you sinned. Now, sin, it got applied to this idea that, okay, so we're trying to hit the mark that God has set, but because of the, the failures of our own strength or the weakness of our own strength, We've missed that mark. Imagine you've got to pull back a bow. And I'm not talking about our common compound bows this, now that we've got pulleys and all these things. You just like pull the thing back and hold it. It took a lot of strength to pull back a bow. And if you didn't have enough strength, you weren't going to hit that target. And that's why this is so accurate. Uh, and according to this, it says sin is that in your own weakness, you've missed the target. But a trespass, that's different. That's an intentional uh, rejection or an intentional, ah, I just lost the word. I wrote it down. Disobedience, a deliberate disobedience. This is actually obvious because if you're walking someplace and you see a sign on a tree that says no trespassing, what do they mean? Do not go past that boundary. Now, what happens if you say, I don't care. 
I'm going to do whatever I want. No one can tell me that I can't go in there, and in you go right into whatever that area is. I was actually taking a walk here the other day, and uh, you know that the airport, the Naples airport is right over here, and on the back end of the airport is where the county sheriff keeps their helicopters and things like that, and they have no trespassing signs up there, and there's a sign that says, no trespassing, and then it says that if you do trespass it, trespass, um, there's the penalty of being arrested. So it's not just that you would like get in trouble whoever owns the property. It's that you, actually there are consequences to trespassing over there. There's also chain link fence and barbed wire. So it would take a lot of work for me to trespass, but I could still do it. You know, I could still climb a fence and I could still decide that I don't care what the authority is behind the sign. I'm going to go ahead and do whatever it is that I want to do regardless of that sign. And that's what he's saying. This is where you were. You were maybe occasionally trying to hit the mark, but because of the weakness of your own flesh, you weren't able to hit it, or, or and you were deliberately disobedient and saying, I don't, care, I don't care at all about the authority behind this sign, this trespassing sign. I'm going to transgress it anyway. I'm going to go beyond it anyway, and who cares? I, I am my own authority, is basically what you're saying. It's my authority. I make up the rules of my own life. Now, I heard something the other day that I thought was interesting because it's kind of a, a, a little bit of a different look, and it feels fairly accurate to the word sin, whereas, remember, it's missing the mark, right? But here, this is what I heard. One day, there was a duke out hunting in the woods. He had his whole entourage with him, all the other, I don't know who goes with the duke, but all those people, the servants and everything. And as they're going through the woods, they see a bunch of trees that have targets on them and bullseyes in every single one. There's arrows, bullseyes in every single one. And he's like, wow, whoever this person is, is an amazing shot. And as they go a little further, they see a few more trees and a few more targets with arrows in the bullseye. And then finally, they come upon this young boy with his bow and his arrow. And the Duke says, young man, did you shoot all those arrows? And he says, yes, I did. And he's like, wow, you're an amazing shot. Are you sure you didn't go and pound those arrows into those targets? And he says, nope, I shot every single one of those. And the Duke says, you know what? I think you need to be a part of my team. You need to come in and be one of my archers. And the boy says, I gladly will do so, sir. And he starts following on. As they're walking along, he says, tell me, by the way, how did you hit the target on all those? And the boy says, well, I fired my arrow into a tree, and then I went up and I painted a target all the way around. <laughs> but that seems kind of accurate to sin to say, you know what? I may have missed. I'm just going to change the target. I'm just going to change it. So then it's like, you know what? I didn't miss. I'm just going to change it. So now I hit it. He's saying, this is where you were. You were dead because you were sinning and you were trespassing. You were going beyond the boundaries that God had set for you. It says in verse 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. The word walk there, it's a really simple word. You know what it means? Walk. I know, it's profound. It means to go in a direction. That's it. The word all by itself means to go in a direction. Remember when, when John says uh, in the second letter, he says, I was so happy when I found that some of my children are walking in faith. That means that they're going in the direction of faith. Here, Paul says, you were walking according to the way of this world. That means when you put it together, it means that you were going in the direction of of this world. Now, when you put that together as a whole sentence, the idea there is that you were going, um, 
kind of in a meandering sort of way, uh, with no direction, drifting whichever way the current was taking you, and you were happy to do so. Little purpose, just killing time. Just kind of going with the flow. Is that so bad? Just go with the flow, man. That could seem like a totally harmless existence, even good. Don't we sometimes say that? Just go with the flow. But when you go with the flow, you're susceptible to every trend and popular notion that comes along. Now, I'm looking around the room here, and I can see that there's a handful of people here that are a little older than I am. And so you probably remember a little time called the 70s. Now, I'm not talking about hippies because, honestly, hippies, what, what were there, like, like 10, really? I think there were 10 real hippies, and then it just got blown out of proportion. What I'm talking about is the people who just lived and worked and went to school in the 70s. There were some trends that you would look at now and say, hmm, what were they thinking? I, you know, I asked my dad one day if he went to Woodstock because we lived in New York, and, uh, and he was, you know, 20 or something at that time. And I was like, Dad, did you go to Woodstock? And he's like, no, I worked. Just <laughs> my dad was not a hippie. He did not have long hair. I don't think my dad wore bell bottoms unless they were like the, the smart casual bell bottoms. But he had a lot of hair like this and he had long sideburns. You guys remember long sideburns? I mean, kind of a regular haircut, but long, really full sideburns. And I kind of look back and think, that's funny. <laughs> you know what else I kind of remember? And I'm sure some of you do as well. What was up with the short-sleeved one-piece jumpsuit for men? What, and by the way, why did that thing have a belt on it? What was the belt for? You, you step in and you like zip it up and then you're like, click. You're good to go. As I was born in, I was born in 1970, so I didn't, have to, I didn't have to choose between sideburns or not sideburns, but I was born and able to choose in the 80s. And, the, uh, and we had something different, not sideburns. We had, does anybody know? Mullet. We had the mullet, and that was, in case you're unfamiliar, short in the front, long in the back. Uh, and we were all rocking the mullet. So, and my hair was long in the back, but let me tell you something that I learned out of experience. You can't put a mullet into a ponytail thinking that's gonna look cool. You end up looking like a colonial Minuteman. Because <laughs> all you need is a little bow and a musket. You're just, you're susceptible when you're going with the flow. You're susceptible to every trend or popular notion that comes along. We see it constantly. When you're walking according to this world, it makes you think that you're free. No one's telling me what I can do and what I can't do. I'm free. But gang, I'm telling you, you weren't free. You were just choosing off the menu that was handed to you by this world. And incidentally, Paul identifies in this verse, we haven't read this part yet, but he identifies this, who this world is. Look at that. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. 
He's saying you, the, when he says you were, you were choosing off the menu that was handed to you by the world, he says you were handed the menu, the prince and the power of the air. Do you know who that is? That's who the Bible calls Satan. Did you know that he's real? He's real. He's not mythology or, or, or literature. He's real. And he is in control of much of what's going on. Now, not above what God is in control of, but there is a lot that he is influencing right here. And trends and popular notions um, are, are one of those things. He says, you thought you were in control. You weren't in control. You thought you were steering your own boat. You weren't steering the boat. Satan was steering your boat. But when you became a follower of Jesus, he took over. You're still not steering the boat. Now Jesus is steering the boat. I mean, sometimes we're like, Jesus, let me just take just for a little while. Let me just steer it for a little while. And Jesus will say, okay, <laughs> and give it a shot if you want to. But really where Jesus wants us is just to be like, I'm just going to enjoy the ride, Jesus. Take the wheel. And Jesus is up there. I, actually, I don't even imagine, Je I think with a big rudder. Jesus has just got a big rudder and he's just going. And I'm just like, Jesus, there's some, Jesus, do you see these rocks? And Jesus. And he's like, I got it. I got it. And you're just, just enjoy it. But before Jesus, you thought you were in control, but you weren't. He says the prince of the power of the air was in control. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. In verse 3, he says, Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. In my version, New King James here, it says, We conducted ourselves. You know what that means? That's where we lived. It's plain and simple. That is where we lived. Um, as I was thinking about this, I was kind of thinking back to um, the fact that I'm from this very small town up in western New York, and, um, and I don't live there anymore. I used to live there. It's where I used to live. And that was what my whole world was. Everything that I did and thought it was from the perspective of this small town that I was from. Um, but I don't live there anymore. Now I live here. And what Paul is saying is that's where you used to live but you don't live there anymore. You once lived there, but now you live here. The thing is that even though I don't live there anymore, I sometimes think about that place. And sometimes I'm like, I would like to go back there sometimes. And then you start thinking, it was so great there. Things were so great where I used to live. I mean, you know what? I'm, gonna, you know what? I'm just going to go back. And then you kind of you go back to the place where you used to live. And, you know, and I've gone back to my hometown. And, and uh, you know what? It's not as great as I remember. In my mind, I've somehow built up to this really great place. And I mean, I mean listen, I, I, don't get me wrong. It's, it's you know, it's, it's not horrible. But in my mind, I've built it up into this idyllic wonderful place where, you know, we just ran around and played and everything was great and everyone was friendly all the time. And now I go back there and the place where I used to go uh, and play is, is like, a, a, like a gas station now. Or the, the building that the, what I used to go to school in that I still can remember the, the oiled 
wooden floors. Um, it's not a school anymore. It's like an apartment building. And, and the things that I remember that were so great aren't so great. And I start thinking, what am I doing here? I'm going back to where I was before. And it's this idea. It's like when you're not living in that place and you're living in this place where we're following Christ, there are those days where you start thinking, man, remember where I was before that? That was so great. I'm just going to try that out again a little bit. And you get into that place, wherever it is, that, that, that place where he's talking about where you were before you were following Christ. And then you're looking around going, this isn't so, this isn't so good. I don't remember that. I remember that. I remember everything being much bigger also, by the way. Everything seems so much bigger. And now you go in and you're like, this is tiny. I guess maybe I'm, maybe, you know, taller. <laughs> maybe I'm bigger. I guess that's what it is. That place that you have in your memory that you built up, you think, oh, that wasn't so bad. In fact, it was kind of funny. You get there and it's like, ugh, no, no, it's no good. And, then, and hopefully you come back to this place where God says, you don't live there. This is where you live now. This is where you live. And Paul's saying, that's where you were, but this is where you are. We we lived in a place of lust of our flesh, fulfillment of the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. Do you know what that means? That means that every single person who has been born since Cain and Abel had been born with a sin nature. Every single, let's, how many of you, by show of hands, how many of you here were born? <laughs> Most. Not everyone. <laughs> If you were born, you were born with a sin nature. You were born with the need to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. He's saying that we were all, by nature, children of wrath, meaning we were all born with the need to be saved. Every single person. Just as the others. That's who you were. That, those three verses, that's who you were. That's that dark background that he painted in order to paint that beautiful picture on top of it. That's who you were if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ. But if you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, that's who you are right now. That's who you are. You're, you are the one who is walking according to the course of this world and you think you're free, but you're not free. You think that you're making your own decisions, but you're choosing off a menu that's been handed to you by the prince of the power of this air. I'm not making that up. You can read it for yourself. That's why we gave you a Bible. That's why you brought your Bible. That you could see that you are living, fulfilling your flesh and the desires of your flesh and of your mind. If you are not a follower of Christ, that's who you are. But there's good news and it's my two favorite words in the entire Bible are in the next verse of verse four, but God. I love that, but God, because this is what it means. Every time you see but something in the Bible, it means that everything that was said before this is now going to be undone or erased by God. He's going to say, this is who you were, but God did this. God was this. God is going to do this. So this is who you were, but God. In fact, literally in my office, there is a big painting on the wall and all it says is, but God. Because if you put that after any horrible thing, but God. It says, but God, and then it describes him, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Rich in mercy. Do you know what that means? 
That means that he has so much mercy that he will not run out of it. (laughs) Sometimes, and I'm sure that there are those here who feel like somewhere along the line, you are going to exhaust God's mercy account. That you're going to come back to him one day and you're going to be like, Lord, I I did it again. Can you believe it? I did it again. That thing that I keep coming to you and asking for, I did it again. And God's going to say, all right, I'm going to give you some mercy. Oh, Oh, I'm fresh out. I'm fresh. I have no more mercy. Here's a lightning bolt. How about that? But his word says that he is rich in mercy, which means you cannot exhaust his supply of mercy. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Because you know what mercy is? Mercy is not getting what you deserve to get. When you transgress, when you trespass, what do you deserve? The punishment that comes along with that. God says, but I'm rich in mercy, so I'm not going to give you what you deserve. And then I'm going to give you grace, which is getting something that you don't deserve to have. He says that he is rich in mercy and his love, uh, because of his love with which he loved us. Because of his love with which he loved us means he loved you, not because you're lovable, but because he is Love. You know, you understand why that's so important? Do you realize that if God loved you because you were lovable, you then have to stay lovable all the time in order to be loved by God? Now, I'm looking around the room here, and I'm thinking that would be a challenge for many of us to stay lovable in order to be loved by God. God says, you're not loved by me because you're lovable. You're loved by me because I am love. Oh, it's so important. Then he says, even, Paul says, even when we, he includes himself, it's important to note, we were dead in trespass. Um, Even when we were made in trespass, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, by God's grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And verse 70 says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is what I believe this verse is saying. And I like the NLT version. It says, so God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us. What he's saying is that through all the ages to come, God can point to us who are now saved, redeemed, and look at and say, I did that. God can say, I did that as an example throughout all the ages. And in doing so, God gets the glory. Let me give you an example that might help you. If you go to Rome and you go into the Vatican to the Sistine Chapel, on the ceiling is an incredible painting by Michelangelo. It's the Sistine Chapel. On the wall, by the way, is the 12 judgments, which in my opinion is better. But anyway... If you were to go in and you were to look at the Sistine Chapel ceiling and Michelangelo was standing there for real, like alive, and he would, you would see, he'd see you looking up and going, wow. And he would go over to you and say, 
I did that. Nobody at that point would say, would marvel at how well the plaster received the paint, but would rather say, that's amazing. What an incredible artist you are. And the glory would go to the creator of the creation. No one looks at that and says, man, that's amazing plaster. God says, I could point to you throughout all the ages now and say, I did that. And the glory all goes to God. Isn't that cool? Well, sometimes God can seem kind of braggy, pointing out his creation as an indication of his glory. Have you ever thought that? Is it just me? (laughs) (laughs) You think, man, you know, God, he was like, I should get all the glory. The glory should be mine. Look at that. I did this. It's my glory. It's my glory. My glory. You're like, hey, God, take it easy. But that's because the word glory or the idea of glory has been distorted by humanity to mean self-exaltation. But, the, but glory belongs to God. That's the very definition of the word is worshipful praise, honor, and thanksgiving. That is God's. There should never be a time that I say, God, I mean, geez, kind of puffing yourself up there a little bit because God is like, glory is me. Glory is mine. Glory belongs to me. And so when he says, look, I can point to you as a part of my amazing creation. In fact, he'll say later, my craftsmanship, my workmanship, and say, I did that. Not the, not the creation itself, but the creator And the creator gets the glory. And then he says in verse 8, For by grace, and this is why, this is why he can say that, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is God's gift. Gang, if you were to ever only one time circle or write or underline something in your Bible, it should be this verse. It's a foundational truth that you were saved By grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It was God's gift of grace that you're saved. The word saved is so important. It's not you have been rewarded. It's not you have been compensated or recognized because there is nothing that you can do to be saved. It is a gift from God. It is grace. You've been saved. Well, that makes it sound like I was in danger. (laughs) Good. You're getting that. You were in danger. If you are not saved, you are on the road to eternal separation from God. And that doesn't mean like, oh, I guess I'll never see him again. It means that yes, and you're on your way to hell. Those are the two options. And he was like, but I saved you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because you either believe it or you reject it. Those are the two options there. You either believe that or you reject it. And, And if you reject it and say, well, I don't need a savior. I never sinned. I'm not a sinner. I mean, I'm, I'm not the best person. Okay. All right. Right there. Sinner. Sinner. Cause you're like, and I'm not the worst person. I mean, I'm not perfect. Oh, sinner. As soon as you say the words, I'm not perfect. That's the thing. God says, in order to stand in my presence without Jesus, you must be perfect. 
But when you stand before me with Jesus in front of you, I see you, God says, through Jesus, and you're perfect. Without me, you can't be perfect. So as soon as someone says, well, I mean, I'm not the worst person. I'm not perfect. Oh, sinner. Now you need Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Verse 9 says, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It says, there is nothing you can do. It is about what God has already done. Remember when it says that he died on the cross and forgave your sins? And it doesn't mean he's waiting to forgive your sins. He's forgiven your sins. Do you believe it? Jesus will literally ask them that question in in the Gospel of John. Do you believe this? He says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word workmanship is the word in Greek, poema. And it means it's the word that we get our word poem. We are, according to God, an expression of his heart. That's what a poem is. We are the expression of God's heart. And we were created, what's that say? For good works, not by or through good works. Again, remember, you, there's nothing you can, you can't work your way in. But God says, now that you're mine, now that you believe, here are some things that I've prepared for you that I would like you to walk in. Verse 11, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who are all called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. First of all, notice that last part. No God, no hope. No God, no hope. That's what he's saying there. But what he's saying is like, there was a time, gang, Gentiles, um, when you were separated uh, from the Jews. In fact, the, the Jews called you uncircumcised, even, and, the, and they said, well, we're, we're circumcised and we're set apart, and you are not. In fact, you're not good for anything. There was a lot of animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles at this time, and it was on both sides. The Gentiles didn't want anything to do with the Jews. They thought they were strange and weird, and they only worshiped one God, and what's up with that? The Jews thought the Gentiles were dirty and unworthy. In fact, they believed that the Gentiles were only worthy to be presto logs for the fires of hell. They thought that the entire reason that Gentiles existed so that they could fan the flames of hell. So there was a real separation. And Paul was saying, but Christ stepped in. And now there is no separation between Jew and Christ. He's going to go on and say this, uh, Jew and Gentile. He's going to say that at that time that you were without Christ, oh, excuse me, but now in Christ, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, it wasn't peaceful negotiations or people's understandings of like, this is how we bring, this is how we bring people together and get along and have unity. It was only through the blood of Christ that that kind of unity is possible and was possible. 
For he himself is not our peace who has been made, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. That, I believe, Paul is literally talking about within the temple courtyard, there was a wall that separated the courtyard of the Gentiles from the courtyard of the Jews. And if you were a Gentile and you went through that, that wall, you went through the gate, there was a sign on there that said, if you're not a Jew and you go through this gate, we're allowed to kill you on the spot. Well, that's a real serious no trespass sign, isn't it? <laughs> no trespassing if you're not a Jew. And so what Paul is saying is that when, when Jesus came, he tore down the wall that separated the Jews from the Gentiles in Christ. This was an illustration that they would really understand. Then he says in 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace. Think about this. Um, think about the, the, the Jews as um, a, a, a container of blue liquid and the Gentiles as a container of red liquid and what Christ, who was the, the new vessel, took both of those red and blue poured them in together and created one new color. In fact, it's purple, which is the representation of the royal priesthood, which is a, kind of a cool illustration. In him. Now, if you took a, a container of red liquid and a container of blue liquid and poured them in together and made purple, can you then separate out the red and the blue again? No. It can no longer be separated apart. It is a new thing. One, he took two and made one in him. A royal priesthood, the Bible says. One new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body, that's Christ, through the cross, thereby putting to death the, en the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Afar off, those were the Gentiles because at that time they were far from God and the near are the Jews. Those were the ones who were nearer to God. Those were the ones who were, were worshiping God. But he said that he came and he brought both those Gentiles and these Jews together into the worship of Jesus. For through him, we both have access to one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. I really actually do like this picture when he says that you're citizens. Every single person is a citizen of whatever country they're from, right? And that comes along with hopefully certain rights and privileges and whatever. You know, I, I was born here. I'm a citizen of this country. Did you know, though, that in the United States, I looked this up, you can, be a, you can have dual citizenship, which means you can be a citizen here and you can be a citizen of another country as well, which means that you've got the rights of whatever is afforded to a citizen here. And also another country that allows dual citizenship, you can be, if you're from that, you can be a citizen of both countries. This does not allow for that. This says you were once a citizen of this country, but now you are a citizen of this. You were once a stranger to God's kingdom, but now you are a citizen. And that means that there is no dual citizenship 
for those who are in Christ. That means you give up your citizenship from where you were before, and you now take on the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. God says there is no dual citizenship. You cannot have a foot in in the heavenly place and in the earthly temporal place. Now it says that we were once foreigners and strangers, but now we're citizens, which makes us foreigners and strangers to where we were before. And God says, look, you're here now and you're in this world for a time, but it is only for a time. And although we are not supposed to be from here anymore, even though we are here, we're in, but we're not from. So we no longer are a part of, we're just here, but our citizenship is there. I'm just waiting for my passport to get stamped so I can go. After pie. <laughs> I honestly don't think that the Lord will come back before the, before the pie contest because he, he loves pie. Having been built, listen to this, verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the, gospel, of the apostles and the prophets. Listen, um, that doesn't mean their foundation. It means like, like their ideals. It means their similar or common foundation, which is stated in the next. Like what was the foundation of the apostles? What was the foundation of the prophets? What were they all about? What were they pointing to? It says in the very next line, I hope. Jesus Christ himself is the foundation, but he goes on and says, he's the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the chief cornerstone of your foundation. If you are following Christ, that means that he's the, he is the cornerstone on which you then start to place in your foundational stones of your faith. Now, thing about a cornerstone was that it had to be cut perfectly. It was the first stone that was laid and every stone after was in reference to that cornerstone. So if the cornerstone of your foundation isn't Jesus, then you have a cornerstone that is not perfect, which means every other piece of your foundation is going to be off a little bit. But if your foundational cornerstone is Jesus Christ who is perfect, then every stone you put into place is going to fit perfectly according to the word of God. He is the stone. He is the rock on which we build. Now, there are a lot of faiths, doctrines, teachings that don't have Christ at the cornerstone, but they seem similar. They seem kind of similar to to what what you might believe. Um, But if they don't have Jesus at the cornerstone, they're going to be off. And you know, you may not even notice it right at the beginning. If you, if you lay a cornerstone in and it's not exactly straight or square, that first stone or two you may not notice. But what do we talk about? Even an incremental change will cause a devastating effect down line. In fact, after we talked about that a few weeks ago, I had um, a gentleman here come up to me and, and said that he had a piece of property. It's pretty big. And they had hired a, um, uh, a crew to come and to do a, a survey. And so they put in a stake And then they went out and they measured um, a long distance down. It was like 15 acres or something to to try and get a a border. And then they had another crew come in a different day and and, um, hit the stake. Um, But it ended up being a tenth of a percent off, the first one. A tenth of a percent off. He says, on the other end, the end line, 
the difference was 33 feet. 33 feet from a tenth of a percent off, and a small incremental change. If your cornerstone isn't Jesus, and it's even a tenth of a percent off down the line, it's going to be way out of whack. This is saying that the cornerstone must be Jesus himself, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows in the holy temple of the Lord. What that means is that as Jesus is your cornerstone, your faith begins to grow and grow and grow. And many of you know, if, if today is not your first day being a follower of Jesus, you know that as you walk on the foundation that Jesus has begun to lay for you, you begin to grow more and more. You read, you study, you talk, you, you sing, you pray, and your faith begins to grow and grow and grow. It says in verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. And actually it does say that we are the, don't you know that you are the temple, the living temple of the Holy Spirit. You now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, he's going to go on in verse three, another, another amazing chapter coming up next week. So I would encourage you to read ahead. And think this through and see if you can pick out all the amazing places that God has blessed you with the spiritual blessings. Let's pray. Lord, I God, I, I thank you this morning for your word for this chapter. Lord, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, for loving me, especially when I was unlovable. But continue to love me in spite of me, in spite of me Lord. Thank you for this reminder of who we were, Lord, and who we are now in Jesus. Lord, thank you so much. I pray that as we go out of this place today that we would hold tight, hold fast to what we know to be the foundational truth of our lives, Lord. That we would go out realizing that we are loved, not because we're lovable, Lord, and extend that to those around us who are also not lovable, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.